I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caparell, in for Andrew Schwartz. In this episode, Scott and Bill talk about the U.S.-China ceasefire and all the other trade developments that came out of last week's G20 meetings. Donald Trump and Xi Jinping hit the reset button on trade talks, but is it a true truce? And Chinese tech giant Huawei becoming the proverbial chess piece in this tense trade situation between Washington and Beijing. The administration is lifting the U.S. ban on selling equipment to Huawei. What's that all about? Plus, the European Union signed a huge trade deal with Mercosur, a group of countries in South America. The agreement reached today will create a free trade area covering 760 million peoples. We'll discuss all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. So there's a lot to unpack from uh, the outcome of the G20 last week in Osaka, Japan, and particularly the meeting between Trump and Xi. So uh, I kind of want to say that we've been here before. They agreed to a ceasefire or trade truce. The president opted not to impose uh, tariffs essentially on the rest of imports from China that would have amounted to about 300 billion worth of imports. The Chinese apparently made some commitments to purchase more agricultural goods. And apparently, President Trump also committed to loosen restrictions on Huawei. But it's not entirely clear what specifically happened in the meeting, what specifically the two leaders agreed to. So well, first, break it down let, for let us, guys. Me, yeah. Let me be the first to compliment Bill on his almost uh, eerie prediction uh, of events that on last week's podcast, but basically all proceeded as you had foreseen. Um, this saves me from taking credit. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> but but uh, most of us uh, expected as this meeting uh, was was in its formative stages that one of the things that was a pretty sure outcome would be no tariffs on list four. In other words, no escalation. Um, and it, well, it looks like it's it, it's not terrible news in my view. Look, we're back to negotiating, which is I think an improvement versus the prior uh, condition. I don't know how long this will go, but Trump appears to be patient. The president has said on a number of occasions that he's not in a hurry to uh, to reporters after the fact. So that's probably okay. I think what we have, well, we had a brief bit of euphoria from markets yesterday morning when the U.S. markets opened. Uh, I think what you're, what you're really seeing is kind of we've reached an equilibrium on U.S.-China trade tensions, that there'll be continued uncertainty, but, uh, but they're at the moment not being escalated. Whether there's any possible resolution that gets into what we're asking for and what China's willing to do, which, as we've noted a number of times, is a mess. So overall, I think we're at a, we're at a sort of a steady state uh, w- with regard to it in terms of its effect on the economy. I think it's not stable equilibrium. I mean, it was uh, – first, I have to say this is – for people that are in the prognostication business, this was really a good weekend because everybody predicted what happened right. and it upped our percentage. Right. So we all look – better for the weekend because it was so obvious how it was going to turn out. The one thing that surprised me is that Trump did not uh, have a new deadline. And yes. I expected, you know, three months, six months, something to, to where he would again threaten to, uh, you know, fire all guns. Uh, and he didn't do that. Uh, and I'm, I'm still thinking about what that means. For the rest of it, I mean, this is sort of like the AMC channel. You know, we've just seen this before, and we're going to see it again. It's going to be a replay of December through April all over again. And Scott's right. 
Short-term happy news, no tariffs, right? Uh, market bump, uh, disaster averted, but it continues to be kind of an untenable long-term situation. The, the, the truce, if you will, solved nothing. The disagreements that led to the collapse in the end of April are still there. There's no sign that they discussed any of them in detail. Uh, and, and we're still demanding things from China that China is unwilling to provide exactly. under almost any circumstance. Exactly. So I continue to say that he is inevitably going to face uh, either uh, making a weak deal uh, or escalating. And then we will have more tariffs uh, with a more significant uh, impact because they've avoided the big consumer impact so far by avoiding tariffs on consumer items, which means that that's all that's left. So if you go to tranche four, you're picking up, uh, like we discussed with when Steve Lamar was here, you're picking up apparel, you're picking up footwear, you're picking up toys, you're picking up iPhones, laptops, and other consumer electronics. And uh, this will all be back on the screen, you know, three months, six months, whatever. And if there is a calculation here, it may be that the U.S. economy is better positioned for uncertainty in in the trade front than the Chinese economy is. In other words, there may be a, a, a way to keep keep the pot on simmer uh, that that does create some movement or creates more pressure uh, there than here. I, I don't know if anybody's actually said that. Uh, it's not a, it's not a a totally crazy conclusion to reach. Well, I, you know, I'm beginning to think that that's what's going to happen for a for a political reason and not an economic reason. If you think about it politically, if Trump's choice is a weak agreement or escalate the trade war, I think what he will choose is the weak agreement and then sell it as a great agreement. Sure. Uh, and then the question is is timing. Because in the first instance, market bump, everybody's happy, crisis is averted for the third time, mm-hmm. at least for a while. But then you have to think about what happens a year later. And in a year, the weaknesses of the agreement are exposed. Chinese noncompliance is exposed. We're back where we started from, and Trump is talking about tariffs again. So if he's smart politically, he makes this agreement, which he will sell as the greatest thing ever, a year from now. Because a year from now, there won't be enough time to discover what's wrong with it before sure. the election. You want the report card to come in sometime after the 2020 exactly. elections. Exactly. Yes. He cuts the deal in this fall. Yes. People have got plenty of time to see what's wrong with it. So it's in his interest to wait as long as he can. Yes. It's in China's interest to wait. It's always been in their interest to wait. They'll drag this thing on for 10 years. And who knows? They may get a better counterparty after uh, that, the election. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, you, it, he may go leave the scene, you know, in a year and a half uh, or, or not. But they would talk for five and a half if, sure. they, if they could. That's been their strategy from the beginning. So it may well be that this ends up sort of bumping along. Uh, or simmering, yes. uh, as you put it. The problem with that is at some point uh, it doesn't pass, pass the laugh test anymore because you can only tweet so many times how serious it is and how unfairly China is treating us and how big the deficit is and how I'm going to fix all this. And if we go through essentially you know, 3.8 years of not fixing it, people it are going to start asking questions it becomes about a problem. Yeah. why is this the greatest deal maker in the world not able to make a deal? Uh, and the farmers, who I think are beginning to say, I'm with him, I understand the short-term pain, long-term gain thing, but can't we get to the gain part because I'm hurting? Well, I understand there was a modest purchase of soybeans in advance of the meeting. 500,000 tons? Yeah, something, something like, like that, that. Uh, which, is, which is not nothing and, and, uh, and maybe at least a helpful sign. But at the, on the other hand, uh, the president was criticized 
back in Washington by some of his political allies uh, about uh, about what arrangements we're making with Huawei and the conflation of national security and uh, and, and economic policy. So what's the deal? Well, he yeah he got it from both sides uh, on Huawei, and he kind of deserves it because he's made Huawei a security issue. Uh, right. That's he, and that's the Commerce Department's statements of May that yes. that led to basically a, where all, all transactions had to be licensed. If I read it right. That's exactly right. They were put on something called the entities list, which has a sophisticated description. Basically, it's a list of bad guys. Uh, and what it means is that bad guys from a security perspective. And what it means is if you want to ship them anything, even this coffee mug, you need a license. Now, Commerce simultaneously took some of the sting out of that by saying, we will create a temporary general license uh, which means you don't need specific permission for these items. And then they listed them. And those items were largely non-5G items that had to do with allowing people that already had Huawei equipment to continue to service and maintain uh, and, and in some cases okay. uh, upgrade it. And now, so, this was pre-G20, right? This, this was yes, the ruling yes. or the, the action by commerce back in May. Yes. When they put them on the list at the same time, they developed this temporary general license for 90 days, which I think would be August 19th is when it would expire. And you were talking about U.S. exports to China, to, to Huawei. Huawei, which is totally separate from the U.S. ban on Huawei yes. 5G in the U.S. Yes. Right. That's separate. That's a question of an executive order that will come out in October, in all probability. This is just about exports. And exports of U.S. components. Yes. Right. Or technology. Principally, or technology. Yes. Okay. And it appears that Trump basically said, we're going to give him a break. Uh, he didn't say what that meant. I think this week they're deciding what that means. Uh, and I don't think it's clear yet what it means. Uh, at the most, it means they could take Huawei off the entities list and restore the status quo ante. I think that's very unlikely because that was sort of saying that's a big never mind. But you can give them a bigger general license that or is, a different general license. I think that's the most likely outcome, that they will, first of all, extend the general license beyond August 19th. Uh, and that's kind of an implicit deadline. So even sure. if he didn't name one. They'll make it, you know, through the end of the year or something like that. And they'll probably expand it to cover more stuff. But again, I think it will be non-5G stuff. It will okay. be stuff that will be at, at a lower level than that. So that will ease some of the concerns of the private sector, the semiconductor industry, for whom Huawei is a big customer. And yeah, I think that's an important point for, for our listeners, is that while Huawei is the top level company there, it's their brand name on the, on the devices, a lot of the internal components, particularly the most sophisticated internal components, are U.S. items. They're U.S. manufactured items. Uh, that are, so our, our, our high-tech companies are essentially part of Huawei's supply chain. Yes. And what the companies pointed out is the aftermath of a debate that we actually began when I was at Commerce and which we have had ongoing on and off ever since. And it began with the Defense Department, really thanks to Bill Perry, who was the undersecretary and then later the secretary, realizing that in the modern economy, particularly in the information communications technology sector, Mm -hmm. which is increasingly defense critical, Right. Think smart bombs and all the other sure. things that even we used in the Iraq war. I had once had a Pentagon official tell me seriously that the problem they were having was their procurement cycle took longer than the life cycle of the stuff they were buying. Yes. So they were always buying stuff that was not state of the art. And Perry attempted to grapple with this to figure out, well, what do we need to do? And that produced a sequence of 
of logic, which is still being borne out today with Huawei, which was we need to go away from specially designed for military use and instead look at commercial off the shelf. That way we get the latest, best stuff that HP, Qualcomm, IBM, Cisco, whatever, whoever is producing. So if you think about that, then you realize all of a sudden we, the military, are becoming a customer of this very large, important uh, commercial sector. But we are not going to be a very big customer of theirs. Everything we buy for military use is going to be probably 1% of their total, less than 1% of their total revenue. So, And what you have is you had a defense procurement system that was really built around acquiring unique articles. Yes, okay. which ends up being very slow. Right. It's not so much of a problem if it is slow. Then, but in this sector, particularly software um, and technology, slowness is, is fatal. So once Perry realized, all right, we're not their best customer, we're a customer, what do we really want from them? And the answer is we want them to be healthy and profitable. Because if they're healthy and profitable, then two things are going to happen. They're going to make next-generation products that we can take advantage of. Sure. They'll be competitive. They'll be strong. And because they're profitable, they can do classified work for us over on the side uh, that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So then the next thought that Perry had was, so, okay, how do we make sure that they are happy, healthy, and profitable? And the answer is, once you realize that more than 50% of their revenue comes from exports, the answer is you have to let them export. Right. Not necessarily everything. And to everyone. And to everyone. But this was transformative in Pentagon thinking in the 90s, and it is still right there today because what the companies said about Huawei is, look, it's not only the fact that selling them all this stuff allows us to make a lot of money, it's what keeps us competitive. It's what makes us able to develop the next generation of products. It's what will enable us to be competitive on 5G products. And if you take this away from us, you're not just compromising current revenue, you're compromising future competitiveness. And including competitiveness in the defense space. Yes, Yes. exactly. So so now the Commerce Department has to determine what can these companies export, what can these U.S. companies export to Huawei in order to maintain their profitability, their viability, their long-term growth. But you know, what can they not export that would pose a risk to national security, right? Yes, exactly. And there will be a skirmish about that. Right. Because reasonable people won't agree. And so if this is a national security issue, why is it on the negotiating table when it comes to a trade dispute with China? Well, that's why the president, I think, is being criticized, particularly from the right. Yes. We have Marco Rubio saying that if the administration reverses sanctions against Huawei, it would be, quote, a catastrophic mistake. It would, quote, destroy the credibility of his administration. There would be veto-proof legislation to reimpose the penalties. And then from the left, of course, he's been criticized by Chuck Schumer, who said that the move would undercut our ability to change China's unfair trade practices. It's nice to see the two of them agreeing on something, although you'll notice in what they said, they're agreeing for different reasons. Yes. Well, but Rubio's point is well taken. What Rubio is saying is you shouldn't make national security a trade bargaining chip. Right. If there's a national security problem, you should make a decision that's based on preserving our security, and you don't trade it away right. for three million bags of soybeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schumer's saying a little bit different, but he ends up in the same place. Right. And now, I'm just hazarding a guess here, but my guess is 
the specifics of what was going to be licensed and not was not worked out by President Trump and President Xi while they were having the conversation. That's a safe assumption. Okay, so so there's there's some space here to actually figure out what is going to be done. And uh, as we've talked before, the the professionals uh, in the security side of the Commerce Department are people who at least I personally trust uh, to do the right thing for U.S. national security uh, interests. And so what's your, do you think we'll, we'll wind up at a place that Senator Rubio will not be as concerned by the time we get done? Or how Well, do you think? maybe. I think there's growing concern in the business community that, uh, that in some respects the process uh, is as you described it, but it may be hijacked by the political people. Got it. And that will make probably make Rubio happy because that will produce more controls yes. and stricter controls. Um, and dis- even if it otherwise. disappoints uh, President Xi. Uh, yes, and it will also disappoint our industry. Right. Uh, that remains to be seen, and it's, it's, you know, it's not clear. I think uh, what I've discovered over the years, when you get military people coming in and explaining what is really good for them, our military people, not, not the PLA, when you get American military people coming in and explaining what works for them and what helps them, uh, the people on the right pay attention and Republicans yes. pay attention. So that conversation needs to take place. I don't think it has yet. So we haven't seen the end of the politics that come out of the G20 oh, meeting. Oh, no. no. Yeah. And there was a larger G20 meeting last weekend. You know, it wasn't just really? the Trump and Xi show. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, and Tail wagging the dog, <laughs> if you ask me, but go ahead. They did issue a statement or communique that included a bit on trade. Not a lot of language about, you know, in terms of urgency. Did right? they reaffirm motherhood as well in this? Well, they reaffirmed the need to realize free, fair, non-discriminatory, transparent, predictable, and stable trade. And we're intensifying <laughs> our support for motherhood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was not mentioned. Apple pie was not mentioned. Yeah, Chevrolet was not mentioned. How sad. They yeah. did reaffirm uh, the support for the necessary reform of the WTO and uh, the lead up to the next ministerial conference in uh, summer an, next a year. Apparently down from an earlier draft is what I... Yes. So apparently they stripped out all language related to urgency, the urgency of the matter. And, and part of the reason why this is urgency is there's a deadline to fill vacancies in essentially the highest court of the WTO uh, by December. And so, are you, I mean, are you su- surprised, are you disappointed by the, the final language in the communique or is it par for the course? Well, look, uh, it's the G20, but one of the G20 is the United States. And uh, when it's come to drafting these communiques, uh, the Trump administration has been very clear on their direction. And uh, they have, they've, they've been pretty consistent about, uh, about not, in, not infringing on their own agenda uh, in, in international meetings. So this, this sounds like about what to expect. As a result, nobody paid any attention to the communique. So that's one of the problems with both the meetings and the U.S. stance. Yeah, I, the, there's inside baseball here. If you look, if you compare it to a leaked earlier draft and the final product, you can say, well, it changed in some ways that, that indicate some U.S. influence. On the other hand, you know, if you just look at the words, they flag WTO reform, and that's yeah. I think that matters. And if you got Probably. the twenty saying we need to reform, we need to reform. I think that's an important step forward. Um, I don't know that by itself it's going to advance the ball very much, but it certainly is better than. And they haven't specified what what reform precisely would be the uh, solution. No, but the good the good news is other countries are coming forward with proposals on that, so you don't just have the usual suspects right. of the EU. Canada and, and, you know, Australia and the Nordics who are, who are always coming forward with uh, constructive proposals. But Honduras has made a proposal. Taiwan made a proposal. 
Brazil made a proposal. The Brazilian proposal is probably closest to the American position. Um, these are all proposals that, that I think would be a basis for negotiation if the U.S. wants to do it. Sure, if somebody can get, get to yes for an answer. Sure. Actions speak louder than words, but the words do matter. The other news from the weekend was the EU continues its uh, winning streak when it comes to concluding trade agreements. So they concluded a 20-year negotiation with the Mercosur countries, which include Paraguay, Uruguay, Brazil, and Argentina. That's on the heels of them concluding an agreement with Japan and Canada. You know, what's behind the EU strategy there? Just some some numbers really quick. You know, the population covered in the EU Mercosur deal, 773 million people. That's a pretty big market. EU Japan, 639 million people, over half a million when it comes to Canada. Those countries are doing a combined trade in goods uh, altogether of roughly $300 billion, uh, massive amounts of tariff savings for U.S. companies, and the joint GDP of you know Canada, Japan, Mercosur, and EU around 40, 50 trillion euros. So compare that with the U.S. strategy. The EU is kind of going around picking off countries, negotiating deals. Well, we're creating the opportunity for them. I mean, look, there's a there is a consequence of the of the America First uh, sort of tougher trade policy and less focus on market opening, less focus on on uh, on liberalization in general and and preferential agreements in particular. Uh, and the, the is that there's still a demand for this this. You know, increasing trade improves people's lives. Okay, so there's still a market for for uh, agreements that broaden and uh, broaden the access and reduce trade barriers. So that market exists. The United States is not competing in that segment right at the moment, and Europe is. Now, this is not new. First, the, the backdrop I would point out is that Europe runs a large uh, current account surplus with the world. Not won't worry about. I'll never talk about bilaterals because that bilateral trade deficits don't matter. But uh, uh, if you're running a current account or trade surplus with the world, what it means, among other things, is your growth would be slower if it weren't for the exports. You know, exports are boosting your growth, and that's true of Europe today. So Europe has incentives to continue to boost exports. It's easier for Europe to boost exports when one of their major point-to-point -point competitors across a wide range of industrial economy sectors is, uh, is absent from, from the initiative at this point. Uh, now, I'm, 10 years ago, my complaint was the United States is so slow that what we do is we announce we're going to negotiate a free trade agreement with someone, and then we take seven or eight years to conclude it. And while we're talking or not talking, uh, Europe proceeds to negotiate similar or better terms but implement it quickly. This happened uh, with uh, the South Korea as an example, where we started uh, U.S.-South Korea uh, chorus for negotiations. Europe came in six months later but concluded five years earlier. And so basically all the industrial goods where the United States and Europe are are essentially comparable in their price and quality and, and, and export attractiveness, uh, European companies or European firms got all the business. Sure. And so it's just happening for different reasons now. It's happening because we're choosing not to do it. Uh, but uh, Europe has, has been savvy at essentially helping their economy uh, uh, by boosting their export-led industries uh, and uh, taking advantage of what we're not doing. And these deals aren't just about tariffs and goods you know, in terms of generating market share. So, you know, for example, the U.S. doesn't have a trade agreement with Mercosur. And in the EU agreement with Mercosur, they've gotten uh, approval to use EU food safety regulations. 
EU vehicle safety standards, uh, geographic indications, which can limit how food items are labeled, essentially. And it's not just the fact that you know 90% of tariffs between Mercosur and EU goods are going to be eliminated. It's also the fact that those countries are now accepting EU regulations and haven't even had the conversation or at least an in-depth conversation with the U.S. about U.S. regulations, right? And and those are in the areas where the administration really wants to to win out, to beat competitors like the EU, right? Cars and food. Exactly. Uh, first, a footnote. Jack mentioned Mercosur took them 20 years. So they're not always the most efficient. Well, yes, and, and I, I, I would contend that Mercosur doesn't have an agreement with Mercosur. I mean, this is something that was allegedly a free trade agreement. And uh, ask anybody trying to import something from Venezuela to Brazil whether there was free trade. And you'll find out not so much. You notice Venezuela has miraculously disappeared. From it Mercosur. has from They've Mercosur. Been suspended. That's right. Technically, yeah. The other thing is that, I mean, this is that uh, the European process has gotten slower because of the parliament. Yes. Uh, and you've got to get approval not only by the parliament, but by the member states. You saw what happened to, with CETA, the, the Canada EU agreement, it ends, sometimes the end game takes up a long time. Yes. In fact, I think Europe is approaching the point that the United States faced in the 70s that led to, to the, like us. led to the creation of Fast Track because uh, you, we, we really couldn't tolerate the, the breakdown, and that was our solution. I think they'll need one as well. Right. That's another subject. So but the Canadian agreement, the EU-Canada agreement was held up for something like a year because one, because of Harvard, one, Delonia, one yeah. parliament and one province of Belgium didn't like one specific yes. agreement. And it's but, still not fully implemented. Yeah. Getting back to the, the, the central point is the one that you guys were just talking about, which is we're not involved. Uh, in these agreements, and that which says something about our, you know, absenting uh, ourselves from the process, but they have an impact on us. Yes. Uh, in some cases, uh, like Brazilian beef, they're going to take up market share that we could otherwise have gotten. This is exactly what happened with the Japan EU agreement. Correct. Basically, you know, they're getting uh, market share that would have gone to our our agriculture community and CPTPP, and, the Australians, exactly, Japan, exactly. Yeah. And they are setting up, uh, you know, the whole, increasingly the whole thing is rules anyway, rules and standards. And the Europeans have been adept over many years at trying to promulgate their standards globally. And on issues like geographical indications, uh, which is, you know, feta cheese and Parmesan and all that stuff, and genetically modified organisms, they have an agenda that is very different from ours. And to the extent they're getting the rest of the world to agree with their agenda, we are being isolated. And that means our farmers are going to end up being isolated. Right. Yes. And when it comes to standards, there's there's always been a close relationship between particularly Brazil, but also the whole of Mercosur and Europe. Uh, when you travel to any of those countries, you'll probably need an adapter because they have European-style electrical systems. And the, the, the outlets, you won't find a 110-volt, 60-cycle plug like we have all around the U.S. Well, that's an old set of, of, of choices that were made. And there, was, there have been long periods of time in our history where, where Europe was more interested in South America than the United States was commercially. And so that, that's continuing on perhaps for different reasons now. But it will have, a, it will have consequences for and, our and producers. The, and the standards issue is important because let's say you're an American car producer for shipping you know, an F-150 to Mercosur, to a Mercosur country or to the EU, you essentially need to build almost a different vehicle or at least use different components. The vehicle needs to be structured with certain parts in certain ways, et cetera, for that vehicle to be approved. When it comes to food, you have to label your cheese Parmesan-like instead of Parmigiano-Reggiano because that cheese can only come from that part 
of Italy. Right. Right. And that makes it more costly to export. The other thing- Surely doesn't help Wisconsin. Right. Right. And the, the other thing I would draw attention to is, you know, the Europeans are going around and racking up these deals using a strategy much different than the United States is, or at least the Trump administration is, right? They're not going and threatening countries with tariffs, et cetera. They're not going and essentially bullying countries or bad-mouthing allies, but Come they're on still in. getting it done. Come on in. The water's fine. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Is the idea. I would not accuse them of altruism, however. No. They're doing what's good for them. This is in their interest. And, and you know, as I mentioned, you look at the overall uh, economy in, in the European Union. They need growth. Right at the moment, they're benefiting from their export position. Enhancing that export position is a smart move on their part. And, uh, and uh, so they'll, they'll continue. But it's a reminder, it should be a reminder to our president that successful trade negotiations are win-win. And uh, the pre- our president seems caught in a cycle of he's not winning unless somebody else is losing. And that is not the way to get to the end successfully. So we'll have some catch up to play. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.